And Goliath is the champion to be reckoned with. Verse 4 tells us his height is six cubits and a span. That would be nine foot nine inches. So I'm six foot five. This tree is seven foot-ish. It looks short. So higher than my hand is Goliath. Although maybe an easier way to understand it, because it is the story of David and Goliath, if you add three feet onto my head... Goliath would be that tall. He is a giant. He's nine foot nine inches. And and not only is he nine foot nine, but he's not like a tall, scrawny guy. He's a big guy. Verse 5 tells us that his armor was 5,000 shekels, which would be 125 pounds. Goliath just walks around like a giant tank. And his spear, 600 shekel iron point, meaning 15 pounds. So a long spear with a 15-pound point on the end. And it's significant, not only the weight of the spear, but also that it's made of iron. Because 1 Samuel 13, especially looking at verses 16 through 22, 1 Samuel 13, if you read the whole book, will tell you that the Israelites did not have iron. They did not have blacksmiths among them. We are still, in um, anthropological terms, in the Bronze Age, emerging into the Iron Age. And some of what made the Philistines so powerful was that they emerged into the Iron Age first. They were early adopters of the new material of war. And so they had iron, and they did well to keep it from their enemies so that they had the advantage, they had the edge, and quite literally, they had the edge of iron swords that their, neighbor, their neighboring nations did not. When iron is scarce and rare, there's 15 pounds of it on Goliath's spear. He is a force to be reckoned with. And it might be almost hard for us to imagine, other than with the best attempts of our imagination, to imagine seeing this massive, giant man and his voice calling out across the valley a challenge. And for 40 days, the Israelites were dismayed and terrified. 40 days. As we read through Scripture, stories like Noah's Ark or or Jesus going out into the desert We know that 40 days is often a time of waiting before something changes. And in this case, Advent is not a full 40 days. But it's fitting that we come to this 40 days of waiting, 40 days of uncertainty, before the Lord's anointed would emerge. So just picture, if you will, come up with the best idea in your head of big, scary Goliath, And then we'll pick up at verse 32 with a scrawny little teenager, although he is handsome and young, but a little teenager nonetheless saying, yeah, I can take this guy. Picking up at 1 Samuel 17, verse 32. David said to Saul, let no one lose heart on account of the Philistine. Your servant will go and fight him. Saul replied, You are not able to go out against this Philistine and fight him. 
You are only a young man, and he has been a warrior from his youth. But David said to Saul, Your servant has been keeping his father's sheep. When a lion or a bear came and carried off a sheep from the flock, I went after it, struck it, and rescued the sheep from its mouth. When it turned on me, I seized it by its hair, struck it, and killed it. Your servant has killed both the lion and the bear. This uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them, because he has defied the armies of the living God. The Lord who rescued me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear will rescue me from the hand of this Philistine. And Saul said to David, Go, and the Lord be with you. Then Saul dressed David in his own tunic. He put a coat of armor on him and a bronze helmet on his head. David fastened on his sword over the tunic and tried walking around because he was not used to them. I cannot go in these, he said to Saul, because I am not used to them. So he took them off. Then he took his staff in his hand, chose five smooth stones from the stream, put them in the pouch of his shepherd's bag, and with his sling in his hand, approached the Philistine. Meanwhile, the Philistine, with his shield-bearer in front of him, kept coming closer to David. He looked David over and saw that he was little more than a boy, glowing with health and handsome, and he despised him. He said to David, Am I a dog that you come at me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. Come here, he said, and I'll give your flesh to the birds and the wild animals. David said to the Philistine, You come against me with sword and spear and javelin, but I come against you in the name of the Lord Almighty, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hands, and I'll strike you down and cut off your head. This very day I will give the carcasses of the Philistine army to the birds and the wild animals, and the whole world will know that there is a God in Israel." All those gathered here will know that it is not by sword or spear that the Lord saves. For the battle is the Lord's, and he will give all of you into our hands. As the Philistine moved closer to attack him, David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet him. Reaching into his bag and taking out a stone, he slung it and struck the Philistine with a stone in the forehead. And the stone, the stone sank into his forehead, and he fell face down on the ground. So David triumphed over the Philistine with a sling and a stone. Without a sword in his hand, he struck down the Philistine and killed him. David ran and stood over him. He took hold of the Philistine's sword and drew it from its sheath. And after he killed him, he cut off his head with the sword. When the Philistines saw that their hero was dead, they turned and ran. Then the men of Israel and Judah surged forward with a shout and pursued the Philistines to the entrance of Gath and to the gates of Ekron. Their dead were strewn along the Sha'arim road to Gath and Ekron. And when the Israelites returned from chasing the Philistines, they plundered the camp. 
David took the Philistines' head and brought it to Jerusalem. He put the Philistines' weapons in his own tent. As Saul watched David going out to meet the Philistine, he said to Abner, commander of the army, Abner, whose son is that young man? Abner replied, As surely as you live, your majesty, I don't know. The king said, Find out whose son this young man is. As soon as David returned from killing the Philistine, Abner took him and brought him before Saul, with David still holding the Philistine's head. Whose son are you, young man? Saul asked him. David said, I am the son of your servant Jesse of Bethlehem. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Did you notice that Goliath's name was meant to be really scary? And then after David kills him, he's just known as the Philistine. Goliath's name will not be mentioned again until David is fleeing from Saul and he goes into the tent and asks if there's any weapons. And then he regains the sword of Goliath again for all of his future adventures. And as David says, when he gets Goliath's sword, the only other named mention of Goliath, there is none like it. I mean, can you imagine if this was the only sword of iron that you had ever held in your hands and you had used it to decapitate the giant, the one who defied the armies of Israel? David is an instant war hero. And Goliath? Ah. Goliath, after all of his taunts, after all of the ways in which he could bully and intimidate, Goliath is nothing. To think of young David with all of his courage and with his faith and hope in the fact that the Lord was with him, could look across the valley, see that giant of a man, a giant who has been killing people longer than David's been alive, and say, he's big, so what? And to hear Goliath say, I will, feed your, I will feed your body to the birds and wild animals. And David's like, giant please, I kill bears. They're a lot scarier than you. You're just kind of big. You're not as scary as a bear or a lion. I kill those on an average Thursday afternoon. And he fights Goliath with no sword in his hand because there was no iron in Israel. And he wins. He is a war hero and goes on to be the warlord king against Israel's enemies. But it's that little catch that I just we had to read through the whole chapter is to get to verse 58. I am the son of your servant, Jesse of Bethlehem. There's another king that will come from Bethlehem. Out of the stump of Jesse, just as it was said, I am the son of your servant, Jesse. Isaiah 11 will prophesy that it is out of the line of Jesse that the king will come, that the Messiah, the one anointed with the Lord's spirit, will come. And it is from Bethlehem that King David comes. Friends, we have much that we can learn from the stories of David. 
reading first and second Samuel and first and second Kings and first and second Chronicles, you get the history of Israel. And there was no king quite like David. There's a lot that we can learn from him. We can learn of his faith. We can learn of his courage because his courage was in the fact that the Lord was with him. We can learn of his trust. We can appreciate that David was the original Renaissance man, both a warlord and a poet. We can learn all of this from David, but we can also remember that David modeled for us what repentance looked like. Because in addition to being the Lord's anointed, in addition to giving nothing short of an epic war speech against Goliath, David also lied. David also committed adultery. David also conspired. And David killed in the battlefield, but David also killed behind closed doors. David was honest before the Lord and wrote such verses as to say, Test me and know my anxious thoughts, O God. And David also kept his motives hidden sometimes and learned to deceive those around him. David was all of those things. And he was a king. And he was the king that Israel needed at that time. But the king who would come from Bethlehem thousands of years in the future would not be the same warlord. Though we can understand that that the Israelites in that day, in the day of Jesus, were expecting a king, a messiah, And if they read their Torah well, if they were good students of Scripture, it would make sense that they would expect someone like David. But the next king from Bethlehem would not be the same one with a sword in his hand, though he would talk an awful lot about being a shepherd of God's people. The refrain of David's life is that the Lord was with him. And the Lord was with him even when he sinned and when he repented. But David is not enough to save us, you and me. David was enough to deliver Israel from the hands of their enemies. But David by himself was just another man. David's life would not save us today from our troubles. David by himself is not enough to save all of humanity for all of eternity. He was a human king for a season. And we celebrate the king in Advent who comes out of the stump of Jesse, out of Bethlehem, who was enough to save us. For not only was the Lord with him, but he was the Lord, the God of Israel. Emmanuel we say in Advent. Emmanuel, meaning God is with us. God is with us. This is good news. And that's where the contrast between David and Jesus can be best understood. That David, the Lord was with him. But when Jesus came, the shift is that now the Lord is with us. The Lord is not just with one special individual who will do God's bidding, but rather Jesus came into the world so that God could be with all of us. 
David was a mighty warrior, and he was blessed by God to do so because that's what Israel needed at the time. But where David was a warrior, Jesus we call the Prince of Peace. Jesus is the Prince of Peace. Where the people sang in in David's time that Saul has killed his thousands and David his tens of thousands. David, who killed his tens of thousands, we will be taught by Jesus to turn the other cheek. Make no mistake, David was faithful to God in what he did. And he was used as God's instrument. But the thousands that David killed would be probably what most of us would look for in a king, a rescuer, someone who can fight our battles for us, someone who can stand up to the bullies for us, someone who can push back when we feel pushed upon. And Jesus instead would say, if someone strikes you on one cheek, turn to them the other also. What a confusing turn of king this would be. What, what a hard arrival that that would be to understand as it certainly was for many in Jesus' day, and even for us, it is today. The refrain of David's life is that the Lord was with him. Remember, friends, Emmanuel means God with us. David was a man after God's own heart. This was first said by Samuel to Saul in 1 Samuel 13, when when Saul is no longer the Lord's anointed. And rather, Samuel tells Saul, the Lord is going to take a man after his own heart to be king, and he will rule over the kingdom. And that same phrase, a man after God's own heart, will be taken up again by the Apostle Paul when he tells the story of Israel's history in Acts chapter 13. A man after God's own heart. David was a rescuer and a king and a shepherd and a warrior and a poet but he was not a savior. And his ways were faithful to God, but his ways were still the ways of the world. His kingdom was still a kingdom of this world. When we come to Advent, and we talk about the coming of Christ into the world the first time, and when we yearn and long and lament for the coming of Christ a second time, we are speaking of a kingdom not of this world, And we are speaking of our Savior, who not only was shaped after God's own heart, but who was truly God. David himself knew that he was not a Savior. He was a king, a useful and faithful yet flawed instrument of God. But in verse 47, in his epic showdown with Goliath, he says that the Lord does not not save by sword or spear. That was what David had to save his people, and he did. But it was temporary, and it would have to be an eternal Savior that we would need. David fought with sword and spear. Jesus surrendered himself to his enemies. Two kings, both from Bethlehem, both sons of Jesse, And yet only one could save us. Only one could save the world. David. David should be revered 
in all of the ways that Scripture holds David up. And he's wise, he's crafty, and I think if you reread 1 Samuel, you'll find David sometimes to actually be quite funny. He's clever and just likable. Jesus was not always so likable in how he corrected us, in how he tells us to not look for the next warrior king, but to worship the prince of peace. And David has blood on his hands. Jesus had blood on his hands that was his own, for he came into the world to save us, not by our effort or merit or by the ways in which we could fight for God, but just because Jesus loved us so. It's in 1 Chronicles chapter 22 that we get one just hint of how God differentiates between the temporary and the eternal. In 1 Chronicles 22, beginning at verse 6, David is having a heart-to-heart with Solomon because David really wanted to build God's temple, whereas Jesus was God's temple and told us that our hearts would be the temple for God to rest in. But in 1 Chronicles 22, beginning at verse 6, David has this heart-to-heart with Solomon. Then he called for his son Solomon and charged him to build a house for the Lord, the God of Israel. David said to Solomon, My son, I had it in my heart to build a house for the name of the Lord my God. But this word of the Lord came to me, You have shed much blood and have fought many wars. You are not to build a house for my name, because you have shed much blood on the earth in my sight. But you will have a son who will be a man of peace and rest, and I will give him rest from all his enemies on every side, and his name will be Solomon, and I will grant Israel peace and quiet during his reign. He is the one who will build a house for my name. David was a man after God's own heart, and yet his hands were stained With blood. His hands were stained with the ways of the world. His hands were stained with the deception, with with coups within the kingdom, with family squabbles. His hands were stained. And so he could not build the Lord's temple. He was one after God's own heart. He was a temporary solution to temporary problems. Solomon enjoyed peace because of who David was. And don't let that connection fade away. That's mentioned elsewhere in Kings and in Samuel. That Israel enjoyed peace because David was the warrior who he was. Because David was faithful to everything that God called him to do. And so Solomon enjoyed peace. But that peace was used for building the temple to God. David was temporary. Jesus is eternal. So how do we love a character like David other than to simply enjoy the ways in which God moved through him? To read the way David talked and the way he acted and to think, if the Lord was with David, could not the Lord be with me in the same ways, even in some small portion? If Emmanuel means God with us, Is not the Lord also with you? 
Do you not have the same spirit of the Lord on you that David had upon him? This is good news for us. But I also wonder if we need to be mindful in a season like Advent that we don't get too fixed on the idea of Jesus being a second King David. Because their similarities overlap, but their differences matter when we talk about a Savior King. When you pray this week, I would invite you, if you don't usually do this, to give it a try. Write down somewhere, on a sheet of paper or on a tablet, write down what you're praying for. Hopefully those prayers are for those in need of our, in our congregation. Certainly I'll be adding Lloyd Redder to my list this week. But write down the prayer requests you have. And, and bring these before the Lord with all your heart. And then ask yourself a question. What aspect of God is needed to accomplish this prayer? Many of our prayers are to Jesus as the great physician, asking for God to bring healing and restoration and strength. But also there are prayers when there is no healing or restoration that can only be answered by the God who comforts us. Some of our prayers might be around fights that we think need winning. They might be arguments, maybe deeply hidden in our heart, between family members, maybe between squabbles of a husband and wife, that sometimes our prayers are for fights that we think need winning. How many of those are to the Lord of battles and God of armies, which is a title of God, and how many of our prayers are to the Prince of Peace? I don't know if we're as well-versed in how we pray to the Prince of Peace. It's a lot more natural for us to ask for God to strike down our enemies to give us victory. And it is a lot harder to ask God to give us the strength to turn the other cheek. We'd love to have the power to conquer Goliaths and the courage to do so. But do we also have the fortitude to be meek, knowing that the meek will inherit the earth? So friends, pray. Pray and, and just ask yourself and wonder, what aspect of God am I praying to? Especially in Advent when we pray, Emmanuel. God is with us. So know that there is a God who fights our battles for us. There is a Lord of righteousness and justice who watches over us. And there is also the Prince of Peace. And we pray in hope to that Prince of Peace as well. But we have short memories. We have short memories that often can lead us to pray to only one aspect of God's character. And that's why we need reminders. I'll admit, that went a lot smoother than I thought. We need reminders of God's gracious presence in our lives. And that's why we come to communion. We come to the table to remember not just one aspect of God that we prefer, but to come and remember the one who was born into this world in Bethlehem, 
and the one who would give his life on Calvary for us. Beloved in the Lord Jesus Christ, the Holy Supper which we are about to celebrate is a feast of remembrance, communion, and hope. We come in remembrance that our Lord Jesus Christ was sent of the Father into the world. Of the stump of Jesse, he was born into Bethlehem to assume our flesh and blood and to fulfill for us all obedience to the divine law, to be perfect in ways that we could never be perfect, even to the bitter and shameful death of the cross. By his death, resurrection, and ascension, he established a new and eternal covenant of grace and of reconciliation that we might be accepted of God and never be forsaken by him. And we come to have communion with the same Christ, Christ who is the King, David who died long ago, yet we come to have communion with Christ who is eternal, who is promised to be with us always, even to the end of the world. In the breaking of the bread, he makes himself known to us as the true heavenly bread that strengthens us unto life eternal. In the cup of blessing, he comes to us as the vine, in whom we must abide if we are to bear good fruit. The fruit of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. We must abide in Jesus if we are to bear the fruit that Christ calls us to. And we don't always get it right. And the world doesn't always like it. And yet we come in hope. Even when the world around us is messed up, even when our own hearts are bent out of joint, we come in hope, believing that this bread and this cup are a pledge and foretaste. They are a promise, a preview of what is to come, of that great heavenly feast that we shall partake when Christ's kingdom, a kingdom not of this world, but when Christ's heavenly kingdom has fully come. And with unveiled or unmasked faces, we shall behold him and be made like him in all of his glory. Since by his death, resurrection, and ascension, Christ has obtained for us the same life-giving spirit that he anointed the kings of old and the prophets with, that same life-giving spirit unites us as one body and calls us to be one church. So we receive this supper with one another in true love, mindful of all of the communion of saints. Today we're going to celebrate uh, communion, if you're here in the sanctuary, with um, these small cups. Just a reminder, there's a really thin layer on top, and the wafer is kind of visible on top of the cup, um, and then the juice is underneath that. If you didn't um, get communion yet, now is a good time to go do so. Um, and there is a, um, there, the, the cups that all come in one, that's one kind. And then there is also a dairy, wheat, gluten, soy, and nut-free bread with a cup that just has juice in it. So if you need to make sure you get your supplies, or if you're at home and you need to go grab something a minute, um, do so now. But we will celebrate together all the same. And we will pray together as we come before Christ's heavenly banquet table, knowing that communion is not about us, but it is most certainly for us.
for it is about Jesus. Friends, as we come to the table, I would invite you to join me in the words of our communion liturgy. Um, If you're following along here or online, we would love if you would join by reading the bolded portions of our liturgy, which I believe will appear on the screen. Okay, so it would be on me if I forgot to put them up there. So um, I, I find it really meaningful to come back to familiar words in unfamiliar times. Um, so join me in these words. Friends, may the Lord be with you and, and also, also with, with you. you. Lift up your hearts. We, we lift, lift them, them up, up to, to the Lord. Lord. Let us give thanks to the Lord our God. It, it is, is right, right to, to give, give our thanks, thanks and praise. praise. Let's pray. God, holy and right it is, and our joyful duty to give thanks to you at all times and in all places, O Lord, our Creator, almighty and everlasting God. You created heaven with all its hosts and the earth with all its plenty. You have given us life and being and preserve us by your providence. But you have shown us the fullness of your love in sending into the world your Son, Jesus Christ, the eternal word made flesh for us and for our salvation. For the precious gift of this mighty Savior who has reconciled us to you, we praise and bless you, O God. With your whole church on earth and with all the company of heaven, we worship and adore your glorious name, saying together, Holy, holy, holy Lord, God of power and might, Heaven and earth are full of your glory. Hosanna in the highest. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. Most righteous, righteous God, we remember in this supper the perfect sacrifice offered once on the cross by our Lord Jesus Christ for the sin of the whole world. In the joy of his resurrection and in expectation of his coming again, We offer ourselves to you as holy and living sacrifices, as together we proclaim the mystery of the faith. Christ Christ has died. Christ Christ is risen. Christ Christ will come again. Send your Holy Spirit upon us, we pray, that the bread which we break here or at home and the cup which we bless here and at home may be to us the communion of the body and blood of Christ. Grant that being joined together in him, we may attain to the unity of the faith and grow up in all things into Christ our Lord. And as this grain has been gathered from many fields into one loaf, and these grapes from many hills into one cup, grant, O Lord, that your church may soon be gathered from the ends of the earth into your kingdom. Even so, come, Lord Jesus. Amen. On the night which our Lord Jesus was betrayed, he was gathered with his disciples in the upper room. And if you come to this point of communion and wonder, are you worthy to partake it? Remember that Judas was also there, and Judas also got to partake of the bread and of the cup. As he was gathered in the upper room, he took bread And as was his custom, he blessed it and gave thanks. And he broke it and said, This is my body, given to you. 
Take it, all of you, and eat, and do so in remembrance of me. This is the body of Christ. Take and eat. In the same way, as he was surrounded by his friends, Jesus took the cup. He lifted it to the Lord and he blessed it. And he poured it out for all of them, saying, Take, drink, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. As often as you drink of it, remember me. Friends, this is the good news, the covenant of blessing from our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Let us drink and be thankful.